0: Okay, so we are in Matthew chapter 9. We've uh, been working our way steadily through, and we now come to verse 14. So Matthew 9, verse 14. Let me just read to you the four verses that we shall be doing today, and um, then we'll get started. Then the disciples of John came to him asking... Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment... For the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So as we come now to this passage... It seems to be, at first glance, a little bit of a strange passage. It's talking about fasting and disciples of John and Pharisees and then wineskins. And and it's, it's a weird little passage to, at first glance, as I say. Um, the wineskin uh, analogy has been brutally abused by certain wings of the church to apply to things it doesn't apply to. And it, and it is a passage that requires a little bit of explanation. I think the first thing for us to do, though, as we come to this passage, is as we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, we're realizing that one of the key issues through all of this is the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, we took some time at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount to explain a little bit more about the Pharisees and the way that they worked and their understanding and uh, how they... Um, and how they dealt with the Mosaic law, because, of course, the, the Sermon on the Mount was essentially saying, this is how you should have understood the law of Moses, and you didn't, and this is how you should understand it, and this is the problem, Pharisees, with your approach. And so he did, he did all of that. So I've got my headphones on still, i me take those off. Um, and, and, and so we addressed that. Now we're starting, and we saw this last time, we're now coming into this period where... The conflict with the Pharisees is going to come absolutely to the center. And it was a long time ago we started Sermon on the Mount, so I'm going to take the time this morning, just to start with, to just give us a little bit of a reminder about the Pharisees, who they were, what they believed, and give us a bit of background about the Pharisees, because it's going to be crucial to understanding this passage, and it will give us a foundation for all of these conflicts that are now coming in the next few chapters. Okay, so this is this is what you need to understand as a background. There have now been about 450 years from the, the time of Ezra and the return into the land and the last of the prophets until we now stand here, the time of Christ. And for those four centuries the rabbis, the Pharisees and and what have you, they had been making up their own rules. They made what we call in scripture, what Jesus called the traditions of the elders, the traditions of men. They had lots and lots and lots of rules. Now we talked about this a bit in the past. I'm going to give you a little bit more detail today. The first group that came along was a group called the Sophrim and the Soferim were a group who who basically from about the time of Ezra and just beyond once they were back in the land certainly once the last prophets had gone they started writing these laws down and the laws were done on a on the basis of a principle called pilpul and pilpul kind of loosely translates as peppery or sharp so they they made pilpul rules I'll call them spicy rules, because sharp and peppery is like spicy. So they make these spicy rules. And the, and the principle of their spicy rules was this. When we have a law, how many other laws does that imply? How many other laws does that imply? So if I say, only, only come into the building on a Sunday... We can, we can presume that you shouldn't come in on a Monday. We can also presume you shouldn't come in on a Tuesday. We should also presume you shouldn't come in on a You know what I mean. You, you've got all these implications. And so what they did is they saw one law, and they were like, well, what are the implications of this law? And the example we always use for this, because it's very easy to understand, is that in the law of Moses, there is a law... Tucked away there in Leviticus, which basically says, don't boil a goat, a, a kid, baby goat, in its mother's milk. Don't boil a goat, a baby goat in its mother's milk. Now the reason that Moses gave them that law was because the Canaanites in the land, as they were coming into the land, that what they would do each year is they would take a baby goat, they would milk the mother, and then they would put the baby goat put it in its mother's milk, and they would boil it up, and that would be offered to Baal, the Canaanite god Baal, a demonic being Baal, as a first fruit offering. Here's our first baby goat, stick it in its mother's milk, boil it up, there you go, Baal, give us a good harvest, give us good fruit. That's what they did. And so Moses says, no part of that should be with you, don't do that. Don't do that ceremony. Don't offer your first offerings to Baal. In fact, give the first fruit offering to me. That's what the law of Moses said. 1400 BC. Okay? Now, these Sopherim started writing their additional rules a thousand years later. The Canaanites have gone. No one's worshipping Baal anymore. This is all history. And they're looking at this law and they're saying, well, we mustn't boil a goat in its mother's milk. But if we eat a little bit of meat, and then we wash it down with a glass of milk, there's a possibility that that milk came from the mother of that bit of meat. And then as it goes down into my stomach, churny, 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 then maybe that's boiling, bubbling, mixing up, and that, we just, we can't break this law. Now, understand this, and you must understand this, the intentions initially were very good. Do you remember in the book of Ezra, they come out of the law, they come out um, of the captivity back into the land, and they rediscover the law. And they're like, aren't we supposed to be doing the Feast of Tabernacles? We we, we haven't actually done this. Have any of you done this? And so Ezra would read the law and they would explain and exegete, kind of like what we do on Sundays, Explain, you know, reading the word, explaining it, and they taught the word. And they'd just come back from captivity and they'd been 70 years slaves in Babylon and the reason they were there is they didn't keep the law. And so when they come back, they're like, we cannot let that ever happen again. So what we're going to do, is we're going to be super careful not to break any of these laws. And we're going to build a fence around each law, so that nobody gets even close to breaking it. And so these additional rules were designed to prevent people from breaking the law. But the problem was, is that they're now making extra rules and putting requirements on people that the law never did. And so, if, so they make this new law, this new rule, this new tradition, that you now can't have dairy with meat, because you can't muddle it, mix it up. And so that then became a law. And this time had happened, and had gone, and... So much had changed, and they'd they'd lost the original intent of the law. And, and just as an aside, this guys is why, for us as Christians, when we read the Bible and we're reading stuff that was written centuries and even thousands of years ago, the key thing we're trying to understand, the absolute key thing we're trying to understand, is what was the author trying to tell us? What was the intent of the author? That's the crucial thing. We're always—it's not a case of, hmm, what does this verse mean to me? You can go to so many churches around this country, and their idea of a Bible study is you sit around in a group and you say, hmm, so what does that say to you? What do you, what do, what do you think that means? What does that say to you? "Hmm, It says this to me. It's it's what we call a pooling of ignorance, that everybody just throws in their, their idea. Well, it says this to me. I don't care what it says to you. It doesn't matter what it says to you. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what the author intended to say. And we need to do the work to make sure that we understand it. They didn't do that. And so the Sofarim, these these, uh, rabbis, came up with countless laws. And it went on until about 30 B.C. And then in 30 BC, there's another group that comes along called the Tanaim, and no one's testing you, you haven't got to remember these names, but the Tanaim came along after the Sopharim, and they came around in about 30 BC, and they said, man, we still got too many holes in these fences. We're just really concerned that people are are going to, are going to, you know, still break laws here. We we need to be more careful than the Sopharim were. Now, when the Soferim were making laws, they, they had a little expression that they said. And they said this, a sofa can disagree with another sofa, but they can't disagree with the Torah. In other words, the people who are writing these additional laws, they can't disagree with each other. They can disagree with each other. You can disagree with a law that another sofa has written, but you can't disagree with Moses, obviously. But now this new group comes along and they have the rule that one of the tanaim, the tana, can disagree with another tana, but they can't disagree with a sofa. In other words, this all these additional rules and regulations, these are now done. They can't be questioned. And at that moment, and remember this is just before the coming of Christ... At that moment, they have made all of those laws and rules and regulations equal to Scripture. And if you think that that is a problem for yesteryear, you just haven't been in the right type of churches, or perhaps I say the wrong type of churches, where there's rules and regulations, and everything has to be done like this and to be done like that. You know, you used to come to churches like this back in the day, and and people would, would literally, in some churches they still do, have rulers... To measure, ladies, how long your skirts were, how much flesh you were showing, because if you're showing too much, whoa, that—that's a sin right there. And people would take this kind of approach where they had all these additional rules and regulations. It is a—it is something that we try and do. We'll talk more about that at the end. So the Tannaim came along and they did this for another, uh, you know, couple of hundred years or so. And they had, they had this whole additional rules. So they come along and they see this rule, you can't eat meat and dairy together. And now, now the rule of Moses about not boiling a kid in its mother's gut, go- that doesn't matter because these laws, the new laws, can't be questioned anymore. So now there is an unquestionable law. You can't have milk and meat together. So now they say, but if we eat meat on our plate, and then we have dairy sort of four hours later, which is what they allowed for, if I put that cheese on the same plate, what if there's a little bit of meat left? Now I'm going to have a little fragment of meat mixed with my cheese, and I might break that law about meat and dairy. So now we're going to have another law that says you have to have separate plates for meat and dairy. Which, by the way, is what ultra-Orthodox Jews do to this very day. So the Tanaim came in and they put in all of these additional rules as well. And if you just want to do it for the sake of completion, then then comes another group in 200 AD called the Amorim, and they did another whole set of rules as well. It just became crazy. And for some of you, because I think some of you will be interested in this, the writings of the first group, the Sopharim, is what we call the Mishnah. And then, then after that, the writings of the later group is called the Gemara, and together they're what the Jews call the Talmud. And you wonder how big a Talmud is? It's like the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's just like volumes and volumes and volumes of rules. When Jesus says, my yoke is, is, Um, easy and light. That's what he's talking about. They had the law of Moses, 613 commandments, but the Pharisees had given them thousands and tens of thousands of additional rules. Now you... Bit of a history lesson, but you need that information, at least a vague understanding of it, to understand this passage. The Pharisees had all of these additional rules. How do you explain that these additional rules are now unquestionable? How do you justify that? This is how they did it. They said that when Moses gave the law, he wrote down the 613, but he also gave other rules orally, verbally, and that they were passed down through the centuries, and that those additional rules are the ones that the rabbis were now teaching. So they're basically saying they're from God as well. Now, if you are a Pharisee at the time of Jesus, and you are waiting for Messiah to come, and you consider yourselves to be the experts in the law, the experts in the law hold all the additional rules to have the same authority as Scripture. So if you are a Pharisee and you're waiting for the Messiah, what is the Messiah going to look like? He is going to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Exactly what Paul called himself before he was saved. The Messiah would be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Not only that, the Messiah would be someone who would come along and he would not only embrace all of their additional laws and rules, but he would give them even more rules to fix in the holes that still existed. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the ultimate rule keeper. They were waiting for someone who was going to make life even stricter. And then as we see in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus comes along, he says, hey guys, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees because they're unrighteous. They've misunderstood the law completely. They keep the law in the sense of checking boxes, but they miss the intent of the law, and in missing the intent of the law, they're in fact breaking the law. They're not even pursuing the righteousness contained within the law because they don't have a desire for righteousness because they don't have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus condemns the entirety of the Pharisaic system of the day. That, my friends... Is our background as we now come to these verses. The issue is over the authority of scripture. Jesus never ever in the gospels has conflict over Moses. Jesus supports Moses, Jesus backs up Moses, Jesus says, you've got to obey Moses. That's what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to do, you've got to obey Moses. I love telling you this, but if Jesus had eaten one bite of one bacon sandwich, then him dying on the cross would have made no difference to me or to you. Because that was against the law of Moses. Jesus was a Jewish man, he was under the law of Moses. And if he'd eaten pork, he'd have broken the law of Moses and he would have. that would have been a sin. And it's only because he was sinless that he was able to make the sacrifice for our sins. Can we eat bacon sandwiches? Absolutely, because he brought to an end the law. But he couldn't, because he was under the law. So Jesus never, he says, we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it. And he brought it to an end, not by abolishing it, but by fulfilling it. So Jesus never had conflict over what Moses said. What he had conflict with is that he refused to accept their additional rules. Many of us found and have found and will continue to find that when people make rules that they have no authority to make, I know a good book about this, When people make rules that they have no authority to make, and we say, actually, no, I don't recognize that authority, and I'm not keeping that rule, people get very angry with you. Because in rejecting the rule, you're rejecting their authority to impose that rule. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. And we've seen in the last chapter and a half, that the key word has been authority. That Jesus is the one who has authority. Christ has all authority. And therefore, nobody can come along and say, Hey, Jesus, you must do this, because there's nobody above Jesus. And that's why it's absolutely crucial that we are people who are under authority, like the centurion um, who we saw earlier in the, the last chapter or so that we are people who are under authority and that we know how to submit to the right authority, but at the same time, that means recognizing when authority isn't legitimate. And let me say this very clearly, very clearly. Churches get to make rules for practical reasons. You know, we can't say, turn up on a Sunday whenever you fancy, because we have to have a time where we meet for church so we know when to meet for church, right? So there are needs to be rules for things to function and what have you. That's not what we're talking about here. When somebody comes along, even in a church setting, and says, you cannot do this or else you're in sin, the response should always be, show me that in scripture. Show me that in scripture. Churches today are still committing the sins of the Pharisees in that what they're doing is imposing burdens upon Christians that God never places on them. And I think sometimes in our circles, we are so concerned about not doing what's wrong, which is a wonderful concern to have, that we can be very open to having additional rules and regulations imposed you can impose as many additional rules and regulations as you feel you should upon yourself you want to fast three days a week you want to you want to hop on one leg for four hours every wednesday you want to make sure that your prayer time is at 6 a.m precisely you want to make sure that you 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 know you you don't do this don't eat that don't drink this whatever Go ahead and be my guest. Not a problem at all with that. Romans 14, you must submit to your conscience and to the Holy Spirit who who, who gives you that conscience. However, the second you tell somebody else in the church that they must abide by your rules that you feel obligated to, or else they're in sin, then we have a problem. Legalism is as sinful as licentiousness. Legalism is as sinful as licentiousness. We need to recognize it as sinful. When I first arrived here, I was very aware it was an older Baptist church and that in these kind of churches, change is often hard to come by. And so I said to them when I arrived, I said, is there anything else, you know, my, before I arrived in my interview, you know, is there anything else you want to say? And I said, yeah, I just need to tell you, I just, I think it's come through in the interview already. I just want to be really clear on this point. I want you to understand that I loathe legalism. And they said to me, uh, Yeah, no, okay, we understand that. I, I said, I don't think you do. I said, you might think that I just said that I don't like legalism. You might even think I said that I hated legalism. But I, I just want to be clear on this. I loathe legalism. I will not stand for it. I will not tolerate it. It is sinful, and I don't want to have it. And it was hard. When we arrived here, there was part of the membership of this church was a covenant agreement that said that you you could not be a member if you ever consumed or even sold any alcohol. Well, that's legalism. We've got to get rid of that. So we tried to get rid of it and we got told no initially. We had to wait a year of, of teaching the word before we could change that. But we've got to recognize that that legalistic rules do not make you more holy. It's exactly the opposite. It makes you more sinful. Because you don't have the authority to place rules on other people unless you have that authority because you're a parent and there's rules over your children and what have you. In which case you get to do that. Go ahead, be my guest. But you don't get to say God says if he doesn't say. You don't have that authority. And let me be really clear. Pastors don't have that authority either. I'm a pastor and the authority that I have is through the word of God. I can say to you, don't do this, this is sinful, because the Bible says it. But if the Bible doesn't say it, I have zero authority in and of myself to tell you you shouldn't do X, Y, or, or as you guys quaintly say, Z, but it's actually Z, but that's another story. But, you know, I, you, you, I don't have any authority to make rules for you. I don't have any. Will I have is a responsibility to equip you by teaching you the word of God that has all authority. That is the conflict that we have here. So as we go through this, I think all of it... Yes, it's a long introduction. It's very unusual for me. I like to be in the text. But this is going to help us understand this passage, I think, very clearly. The disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, there's the question. We, disciples of John, we fast... Pharisees, they all fast. Everybody's doing the fasting thing. How come you guys aren't doing it? That's the question. So the first thing is, why were the Pharisees fasting? Well, the Pharisees fasted because, wait for it, this is going to be a shocker, they'd made additional rules. And the Pharisees always fasted, and they fasted on, uh, I think it was uh, Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays and Thursdays, yeah. So every Monday and Thursday, the Pharisees would not eat. And that was part of their their kind of devotion, as it were, to God. And fasting had come about, and you can see elements of this in the Old Testament, and fasting had become commonplace in the, the era of the sopharim in the era of all these additional rules, because, of course, they'd been in exile. And there had been this terrible time of, of mourning. And we're going to see this in a moment. But fasting is always connected with mourning. It's always connected with mourning. In in Christian circles, we've come to these bizarre conclusions about fasting. You know, like I'm going to pray. Oh, that's not working. Now I'm going to pray and fast. It's like it's like fasting is is considered to be the, the sort of like the the turbo boost of of uh, of prayer. You know, it, when you want to really really pray, you're going to pray and fast and. And most Christians have this idea that that's what fasting is—that fasting is your 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 turbo prayer <clears throat> or something like that. Um, but that's not what it means biblically. Fasting biblically is always connected to mourning. It's always connected to mourning. And there was this 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 right, I think, idea that in the in this period of captivity, that the Jews should be mourning. They should be mourning. And therefore, though God hadn't commanded it, for them to do periods of fasting to indicate that the mourning that they felt because of the lament of being out of the land and the temple being destroyed, that was a perfectly good thing for them to do. But it wasn't to be imposed. But by the time of the Pharisees, this has now been imposed. Remember, we've now gone from the end of the Sofarim for the last... Maybe 60 years or so. We've now come into the time of the Tannaim, the, the and now these rules are sacrosanct. Sank. They can't be changed. They can't be altered. They can't be questioned. So that you just fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's what you do. If you don't do that, you're not a godly person. And Jesus didn't. <laughs> so how could he be the Messiah if he's not fasting on Mondays and Thursdays? That's what people. That's what you do if you're godly. And, how can, how can this person be a pastor who's not wearing a suit and a tie? How, how can this person call themselves a Christian when they drink a glass of wine with their evening meal? How can this put? Per- the list goes on. We have these additional expectations. So, how on earth is it that Jesus is not fasting as was expected of him? Now, I want you to see Matthew uniquely contrasting with Luke and his account here. But Matthew uniquely doesn't bring the Pharisees into this equation. The question is prompted by, is given to him by disciples of John the Baptist. That's really important thing for us to know. Because in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees are involved asking the same question as well and therefore the response is slightly different because he's responding to the Pharisees rather than to disciples of John. But in Matthew it's disciples of John. Why is that significant? I'll tell you why. It's significant because the disciples of John were people who were following John the Baptist because John the Baptist is saying, you have to repent, get rid of Pharisaic Judaism and come into the kingdom of God and and follow the Messiah when I point him out to you. And Jesus has now come and here is Jesus and Jesus is the one who tells us how to obey the law. So these disciples of John, assuming they're true disciples and there's no reason to think not, these are people who've said... We are going away from Pharisaic Judaism and we're coming to Jesus' interpretation of the law. We're following Jesus as the Messiah and we're not for following Pharisaic Judaism anymore. And yet, they were still fasting. Isn't that fascinating? Do you know, that encourages me so much. Because what it says is this, is that these people have repented and turned and gone away, but yet there's still remnants of the old way that is with them. I, I'm encouraged by that. Do we not, do we not relate to that? How we've repented and we've turned and we've left the world behind and we've left our sinful past behind and we're now following Jesus, but there's still like those, those burrs. You know when you take your dog out? Somewhere in the woods, and it comes back with all these little sticky things on it. You know, we we call them burrs in England. These little things that they get stuck to their fur. And we 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 kind of go out and we live our lives, and there's these little things that are stuck to us. What's that doing here still? And the disciples of John the Baptist have said, well, we're kind of going to leave Pharisaic Judaism behind, and we're going to we're going to go we're going to live as as children of the kingdom. And we, get, we, you know, these, these are people I think we can presume would have heard the Sermon on the Mount and would have gone, "Okay, I understand now. This is what I should do." And yet they're still doing the practices of the Pharisees. When when I was younger, I was involved in ultra, 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 ultra charismatic extremes. I was I was involved in stuff that was so extreme that my ultra charismatic church pastor warned me not to go that far. <clears throat> It is stuff that today is called the New Apostolic Reform Movement. Um, didn't even have a name back then because I'm so old, but, um, but I was involved in some really weird, wacky kind of stuff. <clears throat> and I found that even 20 years later, I was still saying, now why do I think that way about this thing? And, I'm, and I found that I was still unpacking things from my past that I'd long since rejected, but I'm still unpacking how much that's impacted my life in so many ways. Your thinking, what you think is right and wrong, has been impacted upon by your journey, your experience, your your family upbringing, your, your, your church history, how long you've been a Christian, what kind of churches you've been in. And our jobs, all of us, every single one of us, our jobs are to constantly refine that, Through the word of God. And, And to see when we, when we have disagreements and to ask questions and say, how come you do things this way and we don't do things that way? And then when we have those conversations, we should go to the Word and we should look and see what the Bible says. Because it may be that we need to change, it may be that they need to change, and it may be that we both need to change. Or it may be that we have different preferences and these are the things that we can both do in different ways. But the Bible is going to be the guide on how we do that. But I am really encouraged by this verse because I see here that there are people who have turned away from Pharisaic Judaism and yet they're still doing stuff that Pharisaic Jews do because they haven't recognized that part of the process of their turning, of their changing is getting rid of that practice as well. And so I hope you're encouraged by that because we have things that we think that are wrong that we we have ways of thinking that are wrong, we have things that we do that are wrong, and we can be oblivious to it. And how do they resolve that problem here? How do they resolve it? They asked questions. Do you know, I've been to so many churches where questions are bad things. Oh, you're questioning. Oh, that's divisive. We, we, for long periods here, we've had meetings where we, cu- we have a meeting and we say, come and bring your questions. And people could just ask us anything. Because whatever we hold to, if it's grounded in scripture, should be defendable and explainable. And people should be able to ask questions. It shouldn't be a problem. If someone wants to question me about my faith, I'm like, great. Now I get a chance to tell you about my faith. Now I get a chance to tell you why I believe what I believe. And so questions are good things. I think we have become over the years a questioning church where people will say, well, what about this and what about that? And people don't feel concerned about it. And I sometimes see people who come into our church from outside and have been elsewhere, and they're just kind of like stunned at how people just question me. <laughs> like, should you be doing that to the pastor? And the answer is, yes, yes, you should. That's exactly what you should be doing. Hey, pastor, why do you do it that way? I'm not, we don't do it that way. We didn't. I'm, I've never seen that before. Can you explain that? Sure, I'd love to explain that. Let me explain that. That's how a healthy church should function. Questioning here is a good thing. <clears throat> so when Jesus, right now in verse 15, responds to them, this is what he says. Jesus said to them, can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So the first answer that Jesus gives is the wedding analogy and he says that he is the bridegroom that he has come and he uses that analogy elsewhere and of course we now post cross with the new testament complete we get to see the fullness of that analogy and how we the church that once he has come to save we are his bride um, so we understand that and he says that when the when the bridegroom is there then then there's the, the, the wedding you don't mourn at a wedding right a wedding is a celebration <clears throat> if you have two people Coming together in what is called a wedding, whether it is a legitimate one or not, they're there to celebrate. If you can't celebrate it, you shouldn't be there. Let's just leave it at that for now. I think everybody knows how to interpret that. But a wedding is a celebration. So you're not mourning at a celebration. You don't mourn at a wedding. It's a, it's a time for partying and feasting. We, we have a, our, typically after weddings in our day and age, we have a reception. These days they had a feast. You say, well, isn't a reception a feast? Well, a reception after a wedding is a kind of feast that lasts for a few hours. These ones could last for seven days. You know, it must have been tough when all your college friends went off and got married. You'd be just feasting non-stop, you know, week after week after week. But yeah, they had they had long feasts. People would go home, go to bed, come back, eat some more. I mean, it was a big deal. And they would celebrate these these things. So you don't mourn. Now, I want you to notice in the text here. Why do you not fast? And his answer is, you shouldn't be mourning. Can you see the connection between fasting and mourning? That's what I was saying earlier. Again, fasting is not turbo-boosting prayers. Fasting is connected to mourning. Fasting is connected to mourning. It's a somber thing. And... And so, he says to them, look, now is not the time for mourning because I am here. Notice, he doesn't address, well, the Pharisees do it because of these rules and that. There's nothing in the law that says you have to do it. He's here, why should you... Because, because of course, you can fast. You can fast on two days a week. You can fast three days a week. You can fast for... 10 days, you can fast for 40 days, you can fast for one day, you can fast, some of you might struggle to fast for, for, for two and a half hours, but you can fast for as much or little as you like. It's an option, right? It's not like they're doing anything wrong by fasting. But he's saying, probably not appropriate right now, because this is an exciting time. and We shouldn't be mourning over anything. Why? Because I'm here in your midst. This is an exciting time. Now that leaves us with a question about the second half of what he says in this, this verse. The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Here's a question. Jesus was there, no mourning, therefore no fasting. That's clear in the text. Jesus is taken away, then there's a time for mourning slash fasting again. Text says that, that's fine. Where do we stand today? Are we now people for whom, from whom Jesus has been taken away and therefore we as a church can fast again without it being inappropriate? And I will answer this, after all I've said this morning, in the least legalistic way I can, <laughs> which is if you want to fast, go ahead and fast. The early church did a lot of fasting. In the Didache, which is an early book, the first recorded sermon outside of Scripture, they said, fast twice a week, but don't do it on Mondays and Thursdays, because that's when the heretics do it, the, the Pharisees. So we'll, we'll do it We'll do it on, I don't know, Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays, or Tuesdays and Fridays, I don't know what it was. But, you know, we'll do different days, because we don't want to be associated with the Pharisees, but we'll go fasting again. And they clearly understood this to be, well, now that the Jesus is no longer with us, we can be fasting again. And the idea was, is that, you know, when we're fasting, we're burning up fat, and that fat is like a fat offering that we're giving to God in the sense of my 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 abstinence from food is an offering to God but it's associated with mourning i'm going to tell you how i understand this and you you can do with this as you choose okay i think the bible is absolutely clear John 14 being a key passage in this. Ephesians 4 and how it interprets that passage I think is crucial as well. But I think that the whole, and Romans 6, 7 and 8, that the whole giving of the Holy Spirit to the church is the giving of Jesus to the church. Jesus says, I'm going to go away, I'm going to send another, and then you will be with me always. That The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of Christ. Paul makes that clear. You are in Christ because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling us as Christians is a permanent connection between us and Jesus. I don't think we're we have a time of mourning right now. I think that Jesus is with us, and I think that we can learn and grow and change because Jesus is working in us through His Holy Spirit. So I don't think that this applies once Pentecost comes. That's my understanding. But, on the other hand, I'm aware that Romans 8 talks about the groaning that happens with us and with the world because of the sin in the world. And so I can understand that some might feel that that qualifies as mourning. And I am the first, as regulars know, To defend that we in the New Testament still have a need for biblical lament, that the lament psalms aren't part of our history, they're part of our present reality, and and therefore I'm I'm very happy if people want to do that. I guess what I'm on a I'm I I have more of an issue with is that when people think that by fasting they're kind of doing prayer plus fasting as now I'm doing turbo prayer or something, you know I'm Now God will listen. When you pray, God hears. And when you keep praying, he keeps hearing. And that's all you have to do. You can't twist his arm by throwing a bit of fasting on top. I think that's how Christians think about it, and it's not. Fasting should be associated with morning... There is also fasting that is done for health reasons that has nothing to do with spiritual reasons. And that's perfectly fine. It's not a simple thing to do. I just think that the text here is reminding us that fasting is connected with mourning and that Jesus and his presence means that this is not a time for mourning. And quite honestly, the more we we see in scripture the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how that connects us to Christ, I just don't see us being in that time. But... If you want to play the Romans 8 card, you want to talk about groaning, you want to talk about creation awaiting redemption, you go at it. And there are times when we lament, and if you want to lament and part of your lament is fasting, go at it. No criticism from me. Because that would be legalistic. And we're knowing we're not supposed to do that. So, but that's Jesus' explanation. He is now here, and it's not the time for them to be mourning. And remember, historically, why are they fasting two days a week? Because they were mourning over captivity. They were mourning over the destruction of a temple. And what do we know from the Gospel accounts? That Jesus now is the temple. His body is the temple. And that he's going to create more temples by giving us the Holy Spirit. Not a time for mourning. The second reason that he gives is this. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. We'll put the next two together quite quickly because they're very similar. When you have clothing, I know today, you know, you can buy your jeans pre-shrunk and all of that kind of stuff, but when you have new clothes initially, when they're washed the first few times, and certainly back in the day with more basic materials, the clothing would shrink after the first few washes. And after a while, it's been washed a few times, and then the clothes will have shrunk as much as they're going to shrink. So if you then got a hole in one of your pieces of clothing, then you took a new piece of cloth and you sewed that on to the, to the old one and, and and uh, patch the hole up, then what's going to happen is that that patch, because it's new cloth, will have to go through the shrinkage that the clothing has already done. And therefore it will get smaller and smaller and smaller and pull and actually end up damaging the material even more. And they learnt this, this was known, they were very aware of this of course, and so whenever they patched old clothing, they would have to take old clothing to patch the old clothing, because they were both fully shrunk you, you couldn 't put the two together now that 's a similar thing to the next example, which is the new wine into old wine skins. When you put new wine into wine skins, the wine skins, which were made from like leather you know animal skin, that these skins would like clothing, have an ability to stretch and to expand rather than shrink it 's like the opposite direction they expand right and and the, the, the wineskins can expand to a certain extent and then they're fully expanded. And the reason that you had to have the wine going into new wineskins is because wine fermented. Now, if you're an old school Baptist and you think that Jesus at the, wa- the wedding in Cana turned the water into grape juice, you're going to have all sorts of problems here right now. And I'm not going to help you with them because you should be having problems right now. That the wine would ferment. It would turn into alcohol. And that meant a a bubbling, and that meant an expanding of the wineskins. When that had happened, the wineskins were fully expanded, and the wine could be stored in those wineskins. Now, when the wine was all used up, they would use the old wineskins like we use water bottles. Have any of you ever been to the supermarket while you've been out one day? Got On a hot day, you've got yourself a bottle of water, you've drunk the water, the water's now gone. And then you take the bottle home with you and you fill up the water at home and use it again. That's kind of what they did with old wineskins. But the one thing they never did with wineskins, once they've been used, is put new wine in again. Because then the new wine will ferment and expand, but there's no expansion left in the skin. And then the wineskin will split and all the wine will go on the floor. So both of these analogies are very similar, although in another sense they're opposites. You've got clothing that isn't going to you know isn't going to expand anymore, is going to shrink, and then you've got a wineskin that, that is going to expand. And and the principle that Jesus is saying is this He hasn't come to patch up holes in their fence laws. He hasn't come to rearrange the furniture. He hasn't come to take Pharisaic Judaism and to move it a bit here and change a little bit there and say to the Pharisees, oh, you've done a great job, but let's just change this slightly and change that slightly. He's come and he said, this is something completely new. This is something completely new. And I love that the analogies are opposites in a sense. I love that you have you have cloth that is going to shrink and skins that are going to expand. Because this principle is what is used later by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, where he is talking about the dual problem of legalism, man-made traditions, and equally other people who come with information from dreams and visions. And when you have churches that are all about, oh, God spoke to me, and I had a dream, and God told me, and all of this, and then you have other churches that say, don't do this, and don't do that, You think that they're completely different types of churches. Guys, it's exactly the same thing. Whether you have man-made rules or whether you have, whether you have divinely inspired ideas, what you're doing is you're adding to scripture. The other way you can look at it is that you can, you can see the, the shrinking and the expanding as being adding to scripture and taking away from scripture. There's two ways to understand that. But I want us to understand that the problem is the same either way. And this is the doctrine that is at the core of everything we're talking about today. Scripture is sufficient. I said to you a moment ago, when I was younger, I was caught up in these extreme, extreme, extreme charismatic movement. I was following the words of all these these so-called prophets, and every time they said something, it was as if God had said it. And then somebody sat down with me and they taught me about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I came to the realization that even if that person was a prophet, and even if that person was telling me something that was true, if I had the Bible, I didn't need that additional information. And that for me was the turning point. That for me was the point where I could come, step out of that kind of cult-like mentality and realize that that person wasn't a prophet. Realize that that person didn't have information from God. But the first step for me was the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Everything is in Scripture that you need. That is why... We can reject Mormonism. Because in the book of Jude, the faith was revealed once for all the saints. We're not waiting for someone else to come along and reveal a whole bunch more. That The faith has been given through the apostles and the prophets. It is now done. If somebody says to you, I think God's telling you that he really loves you. I picked that up. I got that. It was here already. And what's far, far more worrying is when there are people who are in churches where someone can say, I think God's saying you should have that job or not that job. And for those people, they need to have a divine slap. You need to just say, no, we will not tolerate that. How dare you think you have the authority to speak from God unless you give me the reference from Scripture. The Word of God is sufficient you don't need anything else. That doesn't mean that you can't have other stuff. Do you know what else is not in the Bible? Toasters aren't in the Bible. You won't, you can look throughout the Bible and you won't find any toasters. But you know what? You can toast your bread. You're fine. It's okay. You, you won't find an MRI machine in the Bible. But if the doctor wants to give you an MRI, you're good. Don't worry about it. You can do that. There's no cars in the Bible, but, but you can drive a car. You know, that something isn't in scripture doesn't mean that, you know, it's somehow wrong or bad or what have you. But what we need to understand is that there is nothing that we need to know for us to be godly that the Bible doesn't tell us. If God blesses you with a nice car and you drive around in comfort, you're going to have a challenge If you drive one of those nice cars and you can afford to have the servicing done regularly, and if anything goes wrong with it, you can have it repaired, you're going to have a challenge to be able to be reliant upon God when you're not constantly having to be reliant upon him for your finances to keep your car on the road day to day. That's a challenge. How are you going to overcome that challenge? It's in the word of God. If you have a car and it gets you places, but it keeps breaking down, and every time it breaks down, you're thinking, how am I going to pay for it this time? That's a challenge. How are you going to rely upon God in those kind of circumstances? The answer's in the word. If you don't have a car and you have to take public transport, if you see other people in cars and you're tending towards bitterness because you don't have a car and they have a car, then that's a challenge. How are you going to respond to that challenge? It's there in Scripture. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like Scripture isn't going to resolve every problem that you have. Scripture isn't going to give you the answer to get rid of your cancer. Scripture isn't going to give you the answer to, to take away every problem that might come your way, to take, get rid of every sickness, to get rid of, of every issue in your life, to make make people like you, to give you a right job, and you know all of this. But it tells you how to be godly in those circumstances, and for us, that should be enough. Because we are the people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But for the Pharisees, they didn't hunger and thirst after righteousness, so it was never enough. They had to create righteousness through the Word, through rules, through regulations, through additions to the Bible. That was not enough. Because they didn't seek to be righteous. They didn't want God to deal with their hearts. They didn't want to have to wrestle with those things. So, Jesus is saying in conclusion here, I haven't come to adjust the Pharisaic Judaism of the day. I've come to say to you, turn, repent. The kingdom of heaven is in your reach. You have to now bow the knee. You have to pursue righteousness. You have to turn from this way. You have to reject the the heresy of the day. Friends, there are too many Christians today who think that they can put wine into old wineskins. There are too many Christians today who think that they can be Christians and that they can add other rules and regulations. That they can be Christians and that they can take away things from the Bible. They think that they can be Christians and they can have a little bit of this heresy and a little bit of that heresy. That they can be Christians and that they can, they can have the, this demands of the world and they can desire these things in the, in the world. And, and the reality is this, Folks. The one thing we see about Jesus already, the one thing we're going to continue to see about Jesus as we go through this, this gospel, is that Jesus is calling people to be disciples. Jesus did not say make believers of all nations. He said make disciples of all nations. And what is a disciple according to the gospel of Matthew? It is someone who denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows him. Jesus does not burden us with additional rules and regulations. Jesus gives us the, his word, which isn't to be discarded or abolished or thrown away. We don't get to pick and choose which rules we want to keep and which we don't want to keep. We don't get to add in other ones that we like. We get to simply say, you have authority. And he, do you know that that lovely great commission at the end of this gospel? Make disciples of all nations. He says, it's because All authority has been given to me. And so I am saying to you to make disciples. You need to go and make disciples. Because I have authority. As we go out in the world, folks, Christ has given us the authority contained in his word. And that is all we have. There's no authority in psychobabble. There's no authority in the wisdom of the world. There's no authority in anything else other than in scripture. This is how we live. This is what we bow before. This is is God's word to us. And we cannot say that we serve him when we reject his word. And we cannot say that we serve him when we add to his word. Let us be people who embrace the teaching of Christ and put aside all that is in contradiction to it, and all that is in addition to it. May we truly be people who rest on the sufficiency of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that this, this Bible that you have blessed us with that we would allow it to impact our lives, to direct our lives, to tell us how to live. And that we might put aside ourselves, we might put aside our own way of thinking, we might put aside our own desires, our own wishes, our own wants, what we want to do, how we want to live, and that we might cast it all aside. That we wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins, but that our lives would be built around your word and your word alone. It is only in doing that that we truly bow before your authority. And I pray that we would. I pray that this would be a church based upon your sufficient word. Amen.